Children are dismissed at Junior Church, so let me turn myself on. Children are dismissed at Junior Church. You can make your way back there. Nicole and a few more right there. And I thank Karen for continuing to uh, lead Junior Church. And I thank you all those uh, great servants that we have at Bethel Friends. We're going to be going to Romans chapter 2 in a minute. Uh, first, let me say a few quick comments here. You know, to add to what we shared last week and what Steve shared last week, I'm just grateful. Steve has continued to lead worship every Sunday, and Joyce has been leading as well, and certainly Elaine and Basha when they're here. And that's quite an important job, leading worship, because it's not just leading songs. It's leading worship. And I appreciate just how Steve just fills the Spirit and follows the Spirit's lead, as I believe he just was just now, asking us to sing that song a little different. Let's sing that verse again. And I want to ask you, you know, as we worship the Lord, as we worship Jesus, is he your all in all? Is he our all in all? What's, what's our focus in worship? What is our focus as we worship the Lord? You know, one of my prayers for myself and my family and for Bethel, the churches I serve, is that we have self-sacrificial worship. We sacrifice ourselves and we say, Jesus, you're my all in all. You know, it's all about him. Because if you look at worship in heaven, which we see in Revelation 7, 9 through 11, and in Revelation 4, 9 through 11, and Revelation 5, 9 through 11, and these, these kind of windows into heaven that we see in Revelation... The people are just pouring out their souls before the Lord. It's not about them. It's about the Lord. Um, it's the elders and the beasts. It's, they're just worshiping the Lord. They're, they're falling down. They're falling down at the feet of Jesus. They're casting their crowns. It says crowns, which would be their worldly crowns, the feet of Jesus, and worshiping the Lord. And, you know, we have such a marvelous, amazing, awesome selection of worship songs to choose from. And it's so many, as Steve said last week, that it's so difficult. And it's easy for our fallen nature, our sin nature, or even the enemy to make us focus on the wrong things at worship rather than to be able to focus, to, to be able to say, look, this is a song. It may not be my favorite, but the words are great. I'm going to sing it to the Lord. Or we could be focusing on something else. Our voice. We don't want to sing. It's our voice. Something I said last night, I'll say again. Look, do what it takes to help you worship. If you don't know the song or maybe, maybe you don't feel like singing for whatever, focus on the words. Although we do see in the Psalms many times, sing unto the Lord. And we talk about congregational worship. When you come here, it's not about your voice. It's not about things like that. It's about worshiping the Lord. It's about the Lord. You know, and I pray that as a congregation, we can always stay united. Worship is such a holy, awesome thing, isn't it? That we can worship the Lord. It's such a holy, awesome, set-apart, sanctified, consecrated thing that we do. And it's the worst thing to be divided over, right? So I hope that we can stay united and keep it focused on the Lord. And I thought about that as we were singing that beautiful song. Taking my sin, my cross, my shame, rising again. I bless your name. Jesus, you're my all in all. As we go to Romans chapter 2, we see as we talk about salvation, we talk about our salvation, it's all about Jesus. Our salvation, our very lives are all about Jesus. You know, Colossians 1 says he holds all creation together. Hebrews 1 says the same thing. John 1, 1, he holds all creation together. He has divine providence over everything. Just think about how awesome that is. 
I'm on fire about it right now, kind of passionate, because we just got done preaching, uh, teaching Genesis 1 and 2 in Sunday school, and we see all about you know, God and his sovereignty and his providence putting creation together, intricately, intimately together, how he wants it created. And then we cross-reference that with Genesis 1 and, I mean, with uh, John 1 and Colossians 1 and Hebrews 1, these other passages, and we see that the Son, Jesus, was involved in creation as well and put everything, it's just amazing. And we have to watch it because many times we make it all about us, don't we? And we take the focus off of God. In 2001, uh, Tim Gagline started running the White House Office of Public Liaison, providing him almost daily access to the then president, uh, President George W. Bush. So for seven years, he had access to President George W. Bush. And this is not a political thing here. It's just an example. Don't take it too far, okay? Uh, I'm just going to highlight a good thing that President Bush said, okay? It all ended abruptly on February 29, 2008. A well-known blogger revealed the startling fact that 27 out of 39 of Gagling's published articles had been plagiarized. Tim Gagling had published 27 articles that were plagiarized. By mid-afternoon the next day, Gagline's career in the White House was over. You know, you can't do that. He's fired. He's terminated. Gagline, who admitted his guilt. We need to admit our guilt. We need to repent of our sin. He did not make excuses. He admitted his guilt, and he, and he said that this began a personal crisis, unequaled in my life, bringing great humiliation on my wife and children, my family, and my closest friends, including, Tim Gagline said, including... It brought humiliation on the president of the United States. Right? I mean, he offended. He violated the very president of the United States. Gigline was summoned to the White House to face the president. Once inside the Oval Office, Gigline shut the door. He turned to the president and he said, I owe you, and he was cut off. President Bush simply said, Tim, you are forgiven. Tim was speechless. He tried again, but sir, the president interrupted him again with a firm stop. Then President Bush, then President Bush added, I have known grace and mercy in my life, and you are forgiven. Notice the consequence wasn't removed. He was still terminated from his office, you know, that he that he did in the in the presidency, but he was forgiven. After a long talk, a healing process was launched for Gigline, which included repentance. We have to repent of our sins. Repentance, reflection, and spiritual growth. Political power can lead to pride, Gigline later reflected. That was my sin. He said his sin was pride, 100% pride. But offering and receiving forgiveness is a different kind of strength. That's the kind of strength I want to develop now. Have you been forgiven? Are you trusting in Jesus and his work on the cross for your salvation? Think about that for a moment. I have some honest questions for you. When it comes to salvation, does God favor a certain cultural group? When it comes to salvation, is one more likely to be saved if they live a moral life? When it comes to salvation, is one more likely to be saved if they have not committed a certain list of sins? You know, why do you believe about that and how do you believe it? 
Sometimes we know the right answer, but no matter what, the thoughts that enter our mind are the wrong thoughts. We are being partial to certain people. And sometimes we, no matter what, think that God is also partial to certain people or certain groups. We are going to look at a Bible passage that teaches that everyone needs salvation. Everyone needs salvation. There is no partiality with God. And I think that most of you believe that. Maybe all of us believe that. But I'm concerned that many do not live that way. I think many think that God favors the moral person. In other words, many may think that as long as you do not commit certain sins, God favors you. I think many may think that God favors Americans or another country. And to be clear, to be clear, Israel was and remains God's chosen people. But that meant that the Savior came through Israel, and God still has a purpose for that country. God still seems to have a purpose for Israel in the future. But everyone needs salvation. In the same way, the person with a Jewish heritage and Jewish background needs salvation, just the same as we do. The American needs salvation, just the same as the person from South Africa or some other country. God is not partial. And we're walking through Romans right now. And we come to Romans 2. We're going to read Romans chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. My theme is the following. God's impartial judgment. God's judgment is not partial. My application is this. Repent and live for Jesus. Then share the gospel with others. Repent and live for Jesus. Then share the gospel with others. Let's read Romans chapter 2 verses 1 through 11. And then we're going to talk about this passage. Paul begins, Therefore you have no excuse, O man. Every one of you who judges... For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O oh man, that you who judge those who practice such things, and yet you do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? Not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking, and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. The Jew first and also the Greek. Verse 10. But there will be glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good. The Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. That is a powerful truth. God shows no partiality. As we look at this passage, remember the context. This passage is the second chapter of Romans. There were, there were no chapter divisions in the original Bible. So this passage is going straight from Romans chapter 1 to Romans chapter 2. Romans is Paul's great treatise on salvation. I've shared that before. In the book of Romans, Paul is writing about how we are saved. 
And who needs to be saved? How we are saved and who needs to be saved and the extent of salvation. Paul is writing about how, how we are saved, who needs to be saved, and the extent of salvation. Who needs to be saved? Let me ask you that. Every one of us, right? We all need salvation. You want to really know the extent of salvation? Go over to Ephesians chapter 1 and 2 and it talks. Paul uses great theology to talk about how the extent of our salvation. Paul says that it took the power that it took to raise Jesus from the dead. It took that same power to save us. And that is powerful and marvelous and awesome and amazing. In verse 1 of this chapter, Paul addresses some who think they're okay. There are some who think they're okay. Paul addresses people who think they're okay because they are Jewish. Or maybe because they practice the moral law. You know, in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32, Paul gave this litany of sins. He gave this great list of sins. And usually, it was the Greeks or the Romans, the non-Jews who practiced those sins. So other people, the Jewish people, or maybe it could be the moral, the moral Romans, the people who practiced the moral law, but they weren't Jewish, they thought, we're okay. I'm good. By the way, don't we sometimes do that? I've been at many conferences where it's a pastor's conference, and I'm thinking, gee, I wish my church could hear this. But it's for me, too. For me, first and foremost, you know, many times we're sitting in the pews or sitting in the chairs or maybe in our cars listening to Christian radio and we hear a message and we think we're okay. This passage is saying we're not okay. We all need salvation. We all need salvation. You know, uh, one source points out that most translations miss the force of Romans chapter 2, verse 1. You know, if you look at chapter 2, verse 1, I hope as we go through these sermons, you always keep the text in front of you. Always keep the Bible in front of you. He says, therefore, you have no excuse. Notice he just says, you have no excuse. And, many, and, and it misses the force. It, it, really, it really should be more, of ex, more exclamatory, more exclamatory. Therefore, you, sir have no excuse. Paul is pointing the finger at them with great force. You, sir, have no excuse would give more force. The address is pointed because in this passage, we see the Jewish people may have been very critical of others while they do the same things. They are being very critical of the other people, but they are being hypocrites. They are being two-faced. They're being, they're doing the very same things. One source shares this. It is psychologically true that people tend to criticize in others those negative traits of which they themselves are guilty. You ever think about that? We criticize others the same traits that we are guilty of. Psychologists call this projection. Projection. Nothing blinds a person more than the certainty that only others are guilty of their moral faults, right? Remember, when you're pointing at other people, you got what? Three fingers pointing back at yourself, my thumb and my pointer finger pointing at others. We always have to reflect on ourselves first. And that's what Paul's saying. You have no excuse. In this type of passage, actually, it's called a diatribe. A diatribe. That's a type of literature it is. The Apostle Paul is kind of doing, having an imaginary conversation with the listeners, the readers. He said, you know, and he'll, he'll continue that through chapter 3, actually. Now, if you look at verses 1 through 4, four Paul says they do the same things as Paul had written about in Romans chapter 1. In the second half of verse 1, Paul says they're doing the same things. Think about... 
Think about this. Any of you know the story of David and Bathsheba? 2 Samuel chapter 11 and 12. King David had reigned for a while. He's reigning over the whole land. He had extended Israel's borders more than any other king before him. He's been a king after God's own heart, but now it had gone to his head. What do kings usually do? Kings, especially back then, but even today, they take what they want. And so he saw a woman, Bathsheba, and he thought, I want her. He took her. He had relations with her. She became pregnant. He had her husband killed in in a setup of battle. Put him on the front lines. Had the rest of the army abandon him. And he's killed. And in 2 Samuel chapter 12, Nathan, the prophet, uses a parable to confront David. He, you know, remember what I just said. Oftentimes we are overly judgmental on others when we are guilty of the same sin. And Nathan the prophet used this parable. And in the parable, he talked about this man who had taken, who had a little lamb. And he loved that lamb. He let the lamb even come inside. And the lamb was his, was his great pet. But then somebody else wanted the lamb. And this man was poor. So somebody else had authority over the man. And the man took, and that man lost his lamb. The lamb was slaughtered. And David, you know, had been a shepherd. So David had compassion on that, that family. And he said, who's that man? You know, I want to find out who that man is. And what did Nathan the prophet say? You're the man. You're the man, Nathan declared. You're the man, declared the prophet. You have taken the lamb, and that's Bathsheba. You took the lamb from the poor man, Uriah, for your own pleasure. In judging another, you have judged yourself. God's judgment is based on truth. It is impartial and makes no distinction between rich and poor, king or pauper. And that's how Nathan confronted King David. Jesus talked about this in Matthew chapter 7 and verse 1 in Luke 6, 37. In verse 2, going through this passage, in verse 2, Paul says that God's judgment rightly falls on those who practice such things. We may ask, what things is Paul talking about? And it seems like he's talking about the things of Romans chapter 1. That list that we talked about last week. In verse 3, it seems as though there were some who were very hard on others. And these may have been Jewish people, or they may have been uh, Gentile moralists, but they're very hard on others, but they're doing the same things. They're not, they're not reflecting on themselves. Paul asks them, he asks them if they think they will escape the judgment of God. And we need to ask ourselves the same things. Are we reflecting on ourselves? God is impartial. We all need salvation. We need to repent first and foremost before we address anyone else. They think because they are moral or because they are Jewish, they're okay. But we all need salvation. In verse 4, we see God's kindness leads to repentance. Never forget that. God's kindness leads to repentance. And then notice three words. In verse 4, in verse 4, Paul, different translations translate these differently. But you'll get them. In verse 4, we see kindness, forbearance, and patience. These are all riches from God. Do you realize that? God's kindness, God's forbearance, God's patience, these are all riches from God that he gives us. In verses 5 through 11, we see the contrast between the non-believer and the believer. So we're going to keep walking through this passage. We see the contrast between the person trusting in Jesus and not trusting in Jesus. Notice the person not trusting in Jesus has a hard and impenitent heart. 
We need to ask ourselves, whether you've been a Christian for years or whether you're a new believer, is your heart hard and impenitent? Can God work on your soul? God is a master surgeon. He is a potter. We're the clay. We want God to be able to work on us. We need to be able to listen to the Holy Spirit and let the Holy Spirit lead us. We don't want a hard and impenitent heart. In verse 5 it says, They are storing up wrath for themselves. Paul is hard on them as he was on the Gentiles in Romans 1. They are storing up wrath. And there's also a reference to the day of judgment. There will be a judgment day. As I said, Paul says they have a stubborn or hard heart, impenitent heart. About that word, John MacArthur shares this. John MacArthur shares the English word sclerosis. Have any of you heard of that word sclerosis? As in multiple sclerosis? Or here's another one, arteriosclerosis. Arteriosclerosis is a hardening of the arteries. That's where we get this word, that we get, we get sclerosis from this same word about hard-heartedness right here. So when you think of a hard or impenitent heart, think of a hardening of the arteries, arteriosclerosis. But the problem here is not a physical problem like a hardening of the arteries. It is a spiritual problem, a spiritual hardness of heart. They're storing up more wrath through their unrepentance. The day of judgment refers to the final judgment that comes, the great, right, the great white throne at the end of the millennium. Verse 6, by the way, is a quote from Psalm, or a reference to Psalm 62.12 in Matthew 16.27. He will render to each one according to his works. By the way, some think that this is teaching salvation by works. That's not true. That's not true at all. We are saved by grace through faith. That's Ephesians 2.8.9. But we are saved unto good works. That's Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. However, we are still judged. And for the Christian, we will be judged for our good works. And we will have rewards and positions of authority in heaven. For the non-Christian, they're still judged. There is a judgment coming. Beginning in verses 6 and going through verse 10, we see a contrast between the redeemed and the unredeemed. The redeemed are in verses 7 and 10. Verse 7 and verse 10 talk about the redeemed. And then, and then the unredeemed, the, the unrepentant non-Christian, are in verses 8 and 9. We are not saved by works, but we are saved on two good works. The deeds of the redeemed are evidence of salvation, not what saves them. And this is called an ABBA structure. If any of you like to follow literature methods, it's called chiasm, a chiastic structure. And usually the goal is to put the focus on the middle, ABBA. So again, we see, we see verses uh, t- 7 and 10 focus on the redeemed, and verses 8 and 9 focus on the unredeemed, the unrepentant, the non-Christian. And again, again, I think Paul is trying to put that focus on the unredeemed and trying to encourage them. You need to redeem. There will be judgment. There is no partiality with God. You need to repent just like anyone else. So verse 7 is about the redeemed. Paul gives quite a list of nouns, quite a list of nouns that are received by persevering to the end. If the redeemed persevere, if the redeemed persevere, they receive glory, honor, immortality, and eternal life. How many of us want to receive eternal life, right? We want that. Show of hands. Not many of you want eternal life. There you are. 
How many of you want immortality? We all want immortality. How many of us want glory? How many of us want honor? Now, first, it's God's glory and honor, which it seems like we share with as redeemed people of God. But we have to persevere to the end. If you go from the new, throughout the whole New Testament, there's many passages about perseverance. As Christians, we need to focus on the end. We need to persevere. This is not easy believism. This is perseverance through good times and bad. In Revelation chapters 2 and 3, we see the letters to the churches. And if you go through those letters, those churches were facing intense persecution. And Jesus says, I know about it. I know what's going on. I know about it. But Jesus says, persevere. Persevere. Many of our brothers and sisters in Christ are persevering right now through intense persecution. And God knows what they're going through. And the gospel is growing. The gospel is exploding. Some of you may face persecution at your workplace. Or it may not be physical. It might be, you might actually have to put your job on the line to do what's right. Remember, God knows what you're going through. We have to persevere. When we persevere... As redeemed people, we receive, we, we, we receive glory, honor, immortality, and eternal life. Verses 8 and 9 are written about unbelievers, the unrepentant, the person with the hard and impenitent heart. Verses 8 and 9 show what happens to the person who does not persevere, the non-believers. These are unbelievers. They do not obey the truth. They obey unrighteousness, he says. Listen, they will experience God's wrath and fury. They will experience God's wrath and fury. Listen, I said this last week, I'm repeating. I know it's not popular to talk about wrath now. But it's in the Bible some 700 times. God is holy. God is righteous. God is perfect. God is set apart. And God's holiness pretty much burns up anything unholy. We need Jesus' death on the cross to save us from our sins, to set us free. And without that, we will experience the wrath of God because of God's holiness, his perfection. And I think the Apostle Paul is trying to kind of focus in right here. Repent while you have time. Focus on Jesus while, while you have time. Don't have a hard and impenitent heart. Paul wants to see people saved. He wants them saved. Verse 9 shares that they will face tribulation, distress. And this goes to the Jew first, also the Greek. The Jew first, also the Greek. Paul repeatedly says that because salvation came from the Jews. Verse 10 brings back the contrast to the positive. Now we are going back to the believers. And this is about perseverance. Verse 10 comes back to the believers. Again, verse 7, believers. Verses 8 and 9, unbelievers. Verse 10, believers. This is about perseverance and doing good. The believers will experience glory and honor and peace. That's repeated from verse 7. To the Jew first, also to the Greek. They are repeated. But now, now, peace is left out and... and uh, and uh, wait, peace replaces immortality and eternal life. Listen, we must persevere. Any of you know that child's toy is kind of a big vinyl doll with sand at the bottom. And every time you knock down the doll, it bounces back up again, right? You know that. That's what the believers were like in the first century. Every time they were knocked down, 
they pop back up. I should have got one as a visual, visual demonstration. Every time they fell down, they came back up. Every time they fell down, they came back up. That's what we must be like. As we persevere, we will get knocked down. We bounce right back up. And we keep on persevering on the, in the faith. Why do we do that? Because Jesus is with us. Why else do we do that? Because we know the end. We know eternal life. We know what we have in Jesus. We have abundant life, John 10, 10. We have a fullness life. We have complete life. We have eternal life. We can persevere. We must be like them. Verse 11, there's no partiality with God. We, we see that in Deuteronomy 10, 17. I taught through Deuteronomy a couple years ago. I loved, loved, loved teaching through Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy, we repeatedly see the idea that there's no partiality with God. God cares about the orphans and widows. God cares about the, in Deuteronomy, it would say the alien, the foreigner, the one displaced, the migrant. You know, God cares about them. God cares about the downcast, the brokenhearted. God cares about you and me. He cares about all of us. He is not partial. We're going to make some applications here. And I'm going to do, these applications are kind of in order through this text, Okay. We must be humble and understand that we need redeemed as much as anyone. We must get rid of any arrogance. You cannot be arrogant about your salvation. Don't. We're saved by grace. It's totally by God's grace. Don't think that you earned it. We must understand that God does not show partiality. We must understand that God does not show partiality to the Jewish people over the Gentiles. I listen to Dr. Radonik every week. He's a Messianic Jew raised in a strict Jewish home. He teaches Jewish studies and Bible at Moody Bible Institute. And every week, Jewish people will call him or Messianic Jews will call him. And he'll say, we need saved the same way as anyone else. We need it the same way as anyone else. We must understand that God does not show partiality to people with a Christian background. Listen, even if your parents were Christians, even if your grandparents were Christians, you still need to accept Jesus as Lord and Savior on your own. So do I. We are not born a Christian. God does not have grandchildren. You need to make that faith your own and trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior. We must understand that God does not show partiality to people who live a moral life. You can live a moral life on the outside and still be unsaved and need salvation. We must understand that God does not show partiality to Americans. In fact, we are, have, we, have, we, we are at such great advantage that who knows, we may be judged more strictly in the end because of rejecting the gospel. We must be so careful about judging while doing the same things. Look back on your own life. 2 Corinthians 13.5, Paul says to examine yourself. And make sure you're saved, unless you fail the test. Judging condemns ourselves, he says in verse 1. We must not be spiritually arrogant. We must remember that the judgment of God falls on us when we practice those same things. We must understand that we will not escape to judgments. Again, God is not partial. And notice I'm repeating these applications because Paul emphasizes these so much in this section. We must not, not think lightly on the riches of God's kindness, tolerance, and patience. I think too often we think lightly. We trivialize our salvation. That's not a good thing. Don't do that. These are riches from God. 
Don't trivialize the riches of God's forbearance, their tolerance. We must not trivialize the riches of God's patience. We must, we must repent when we do trivialize these great riches from God. If you trivialize it, don't be, you know, don't be too guilty. Just go and repent. Once you repent, you know, you're forgiven and you can move on. You can move on. Remember that there is a day of judgment. We must repent now while we have time. We must seek Christ now. We must live for his kingdom now. And as I always emphasize, we must share the gospel. We must share the gospel. Don't wait for tomorrow. We're never promised tomorrow. Maybe that's sometimes part of our arrogance. You know, James says, you're never promised tomorrow. Say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. I had a professor in college, and he told me one story. He was coming home, and he was going into his apartment or condo, wherever he lived at the time, and he saw a neighbor taking his trash out. And he thought, I should probably share the gospel with him. I should, I should go out of my way to share the gospel with him. He thought, I'll do it, I'll do it tomorrow. He never saw the man again. Eventually he inquired, what, what happened to him? That man died that night or one of the next few days before he could ever share the gospel with him. We're never promised tomorrow. If God lays something on your heart, don't wait. Don't wait. I pray that we are praying evangelically. <laughs> that we are praying about the gospel and the high importance of knowing the gospel ourselves, but sharing the gospel with other people. I think of David Platt. He was a director of international missions for the Southern Baptist Convention. And he said, uh, or maybe, no, it might have been Francis Chan. It doesn't matter. He said, you know, we talk about how much we love our family and friends, but if we don't share the gospel with them, maybe we don't love them as much as we think we do. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this wonderful passage pointing to the fact that we need salvation. There is no partiality with God. Lord God, I thank you that you're not partial. Because if you were partial, maybe we would never have been able to be saved. But because of your impartiality, we had the gospel come to us. And because of your impartiality, the Holy Spirit was laid on our heart, regenerating us and saving us. Lord God, help us to share the gospel with others. And for anyone here right now who does not know you as Lord and Savior, I say again, may today be the day of salvation. May today be the day where they confess they're a sinner in need of a Savior, believe in you as the one and only Savior, trust in you and commit to you. Lord God, I pray that you're always working on our hearts, wooing us to you, convicting us to repent. And don't let us ignore the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. I want to invite you always. The altars are open. We announced this last Sunday for the first time in a long time. If, any of, if, if the Holy Spirit's laid anything on any of your hearts during this closing song, you're welcome to come forward or even after the closing song and pray. And if you want somebody to pray with you, you, you could certainly invite somebody you're sitting with, one of your friends or family members to come up with you. I know that um, somebody else in the church, Tim Burns, is always available. Even if I'm greeting people, he's available to pray with you. And, and you can even walk right up to him during the closing song and he loves to pray with people. If you want to pray by yourself, you can always certainly go right to the altars and kneel and pray. The altars are always open. Never ignore the Holy Spirit. If he's, if he's impressing something on your heart, talk to him about it right now. Don't wait. And as I always say, if you have questions about God or the spiritual life, reach out to me. I'd love to talk to you. Invite the praise team for the closing song. Amen.